All right, ready to start this morning. Good season one out. Uh, this brings to uh, close the third of a three-part lesson on, on premillennialism. Uh, a lot of material to cover in a short period of time. Hopefully uh, it will prove beneficial to us. I know I've talked to some. Some have done a lot of study in some so it wasn't new. It wasn't new at all. But uh, <clears throat> just a very quick review this morning. The approach we took was the theory. We talked about the theory of what the implications were. That was last Sunday morning. That'll be the basis for our study this morning. We looked at Revelation 20 Wednesday night because that's the proof text, the key proof text of the premillennialists. This morning we're going to look at the scripture's response, what the scriptures say regarding those implications. And once again, there is the theory sort of captured pictorially in our mind. There's a lot of error. Uh, fraud within within this theory. We're going to see some of that this morning. Key point I wanted to make, which we made last Sunday morning, because uh, some may not realize that, that it created a major issue in the church back in the 30s and 40s. Not too many in this room would have been fighting those battles back in those days. But uh, it did exist and still exists today. That is, has not gone away. You get up in the Louisville, Bowling Green area, Still very much alive up in that area. I suspect, like other issues, you've got families up there that take both sides of this, like you would have many other issues in the church. So uh, we're somewhat insulated here, although not too far from Louisville, Bowling Green, but it's still very much, uh, still very much alive within Lord's Church. We look at the implications. We're not going to go through all these, but these are the ones. We're going to look at about eight or nine of these this morning. I combined a couple. We don't have time to take a look at all of these this morning. But this is a list. Uh, this is all online, by the way. Uh, so if you want to go back, you can pick the charts up. The charts are all out there. You can go back and get them. Sunday night, I mean, once tonight, we look at Revelation chapter 20. Uh, the approach we took was a contextual approach. Comment on Wednesday night that you could really answer and explain Revelation 20 without leaving the book. And at the end of the day, that might be the best way to explain Revelation 20. You just stay within the book of Revelation and let it explain itself. We said the message of Revelation 20 is the ultimate assurance that God's faithful are going to be avenged. It answers the question by the martyred saints in Revelation chapter 6, how long until we're avenged? And so that is the primary message. I think Revelation chapter 20, because chapter 17, 18, and 19... Uh, the beast and the false prophet had been judged. But yet that still left one out there, and that being Satan. Uh, the ultimate assurance would be that Satan himself is going to be cast down. And that was reserved until Revelation chapter 20. Then we look at what the message of Revelation chapter 20 is. We'll not go over that this morning. Except to say, as we look at the implications this morning, I will not go back and review many implications of Revelation chapter 20. The issue of what's figurative versus literal. Uh, there are a lot of implications that they make within chapter 20 that I will not review uh, this morning. All right? Which brings to our study uh, this morning. We want to let the scriptures respond. Now, there are, there are just a, a myriad number of passages. No doubt, as you began your study last Sunday morning, comments you made, there are a lot of scriptures in your minds that you know that clash with this theory. Uh, we don't have time this morning to look at all those passages, so we'll take a look at quite a few this morning as time permits. Uh, one thing that begins very, becomes very important is a basic premise is that 
the land promised when it has not been fulfilled. And that God's promise to Israel is that they will be given a land and the nation will be restored. Now, I was off a year last year. My friend Greg, uh, correct me on that, it's 1947-1948 is when Israel became a sovereign state. Now, what's interesting, if you look at Foley Wallace's book, you see uh, some prejudice there in his book on the view he took, even though I agree with him. Uh, he, he didn't think that would ever happen. He said it's very, very unlikely that Israel would even become a sovereign state again. Uh, that was written in 1945. In 1948, it happened. Which says that he is just, uh, he's fallible, right? As we all know. But I found that to be interesting. But even though Israel is now a nation, it does not state and does not imply to anyone that these promises are, have been fulfilled in that or yet to be fulfilled. But they believe, of course, that the nation of Israel will be restored to its former state. Now, the nation of Israel today, is it larger or smaller than it was in the days of David and Solomon? Smaller. Certainly smaller, right? Uh, so Israel today doesn't comprise all of that area. And that today is why they're still the fighting. That becomes the basis for a lot of the fighting. Israel, Israel today says, hey, this is ours. It's our divine heritage from God. God says, this is our land. And those feelings run very deeply, right? You're able to divide religion and politics in that country. Uh, you're not, I'm not sure which, which is driving the most, but if you lay that aside and look only from the uh, Old Testament standpoint, that would be the basis for that view. Now, there are a lot of verses we can look at this morning. Uh, the promise first stated in Genesis 12, 1 through 7, restated in Genesis chapter 15 in a full context, restated in Exodus. Uh, so the promise made Abraham are restated a number of times. Uh, throughout the Old Testament. But you recall the basic three pieces, I'm only addressing one. You had the land, the nation, and the sea. Uh, the nation was fulfilled, obviously, went down to Egypt. When it went to Egypt, they had 70 people that came out, uh, 603,550 men aged 21 upwards. So the nation promise was fulfilled in Egypt as they became that great nation. The sea promise, of course, fulfilled in Christ very clearly stated in Galatians chapter 3. So the only piece I'm addressing here is that there would be the land that would be given to Abraham. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 8 is sort of a subtle verse, but it's sort of important. As a much as it pinpoints that now go up and possess the land that was promised to Abraham. So Moses Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 8 ties the land they were about to go in and possess, being Canaan, to the promise that God made to Abraham. Well, I think this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 1, subtle though it is, is still sort of a key passage because it makes that a very close tie. And what God promised, now you're about to inherit the promise. Probably the, the easiest passage to see is Joshua 21, 43 through 45, which I've got on the screen. Look at the red force that God gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers, then they possessed it and dwelt therein. Now, if you come to the New Testament, uh, the Israelites, the Jews in the first century, always referred to their fathers. When they referred to their fathers, who did they refer to? <coughs> Three, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Most often say, we are our father Abraham. Uh, John chapter 8. We've never been bonded to anyone. We're of our father Abraham. So there's really no disputing by any uh, 
Bible student uh, what the fathers are. So it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in particular Abraham, because as we know, the promise was restated generation to generation down to Isaac, etc. So the passage that we said in Joshua 21, they possess a land and dwelt therein. Then it says, There fell not aught of any good thing which Jehovah had spoken unto the house of Israel, all came to pass. So certainly a very, very key passage. Uh, Premillennialists have a difficult time dealing with this. The way they try to deal with it, the well was only partially fulfilled. And they would take that approach of many, many things, such as the kingdom, depending on which one, the well, the kingdom, the church is sort of part of the kingdom, sort of the first installment. There's a first installment theory that the church is the first installment of the kingdom, but it's not the complete kingdom. What do they do with the word all there in verse 20, uh, 45? I'm not all sure. I've never had that discussion. But all is a pretty all means all, right? So, so this is a key passage. If you if you just remember one verse, uh, this is the one I would remember. Joshua 21. It's a clear statement uh, about the land promise made Abraham. Now, if you're talking pretty well, well, that may be true. They said this promise, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the restoration promise. Of course, the restoration promise is a possessed. The land, right? When they went up, possessed the land. In 722, what happened? The Israel carried into Syrian captivity. What happened from 606 to 586? Judah carried into Babylon. Judah carried into captivity. That's a matter of Bible history, secular history. We know that happened. Now, regarding this, again, there were some promises made by God. And no referred to as restoration promises or return promises. That they go into captivity, but they would be returned from captivity. Now, I've just captured a few of the facts I think are the easiest to uh, follow. Uh, first of all, even after, when they were in Israel, before Joshua died. Now, when Joshua was about to die, were they possessing Canaan at that point in time? Yes, he just led them in, right? Moses, said, uh, Moses, when Moses right before he died, said, Joshua, you got to rise up and leave over Canaan. So that's what Joshua's final charge was to lead them into the promised land. And now before he died, he gave them a, a challenge and said, this is going to be taken from you. All right? Joshua lived with these people for all these years. And so it was always conditional. Even going back to the, the statement by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. All right? uh, Jeremiah 18 is a passage that uh, we need to be familiar with. It's when Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. And there he says that Basically, the kingdoms of the world are in my hand. If I choose, I can pluck a nation up. I can cast a nation down. I can raise a nation up. Now, the five all nations, but the real message, Jeremiah 18, and then going into chapter 19, is that he was really talking about Israel, the combined Israel of Judah. And so it's a statement that they were going to be scattered because of their disobedience. So Jeremiah and other prophets foretold that. Isaiah. Uh, the prophet said that you've taken, God has given you the promised land, but because you're dis- disobedient, you're going to be sent into captivity. Well, we have an account, another key verse, 2 Chronicles 36, a lot of history captured in one account right here. Now, 2 Chronicles 36 is a, is a key Old Testament chapter because it, it brings a lot of prophecies together in this chapter. A lot of references here. So, it's a very rich chapter in a study of of this topic and other topics. Now, back in Jeremiah chapter 22, uh, verses 24 through 25, uh, there was Jeremiah and others prophesied 
that that captive they would be taken into Babylonian captivity. So years before this happened, it was prophesied that the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar would come and take them into captivity. So the events in the second Chronicles 36 up to verse 20 really had to do with King Nebuchadnezzar coming into Jerusalem, uh, taking them captive, destroying the temple, taking all the gold artifacts, etc., out of the temple, carrying them back to Babylonia. All right? Uh, so it was prophesied, and we see that account in Second Chronicles chapter 36. So they carried into captivity. Now, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, 11 through 17, specifies it would be for a 70 year period of time. Now that's key, and the word till is used in that passage. Uh, much like Galatians 3, I talk about the Old Testament law, it would be a schoolmaster till the seed should come. Alright? Now we're going to be here until. Uh, the bell rings. So there's a specific period of time in which somebody's going to be in a particular order that a change is going to take place. And that's what we see here in, in Jeremiah 25. The exile would be for a specific 70-year period of time. Now that time reckons from 606 to 536. Uh, last, if you ever get in and start looking at the time, just remember to start the time at 606. Because carrying in captivity began in 606. Now there were three carrying away, remember, 606, 597, and 586. So when you get in and do the math of the 70 years, just make a little note that you want to begin that at the year 606 when the captivity actually began and not 586. If you don't do that, you're going to get into a problem with math because it just doesn't add up. That's how that's reconciled. Another interesting point is Isaiah prophesied, and he, he said that God was going to raise up Cyrus, and Cyrus would be the anointed of God. So here is Cyrus mentioned by name before he was ever born, which doesn't surprise us as Bible students. God had already pre-selected Cyrus for his birth. God said, I'm going to raise up Cyrus. And so by God's providence, we have him noted in Isaiah 44, 28, as he would be the only one of God, also in chapter 45, verse 1. Uh, then if you come to the end of Second Chronicles chapter 36, after it notes the carrying away into the Babylonian captivity, we find that then the reference is made to Second Chronicles 36 closes. Now it's all about Cyrus coming to power in the days of Medes and Persian. And so he comes to power in Ezra chapter 1, 1 through 4, from which this is taken, is very key. Because this is the fulfillment of the restoration prophecies. Freeman Lewis was saying, well, they possessed the land, but now they were carried to captivity and God again promised the land. Well, we then have to answer that argument that the restoration prophecy has also been fulfilled. And this is a statement in Ezra chapter 1, Whosoever there is among you of all his people, is God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build a house to hold the God of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. Did they go back and rebuild the house? Yes, they did. Cyrus gave them leave to go. And so this is the key passage here. We don't have time to expand on this more. But these are the key verses that really help us understand, I think, very clearly that the restoration promise has also been fulfilled. Now, certain other passages we could use, but we don't have time. So there's the beginning, uh, very key. The land promise and the restoration of the land 
coming back to captivity have both been fulfilled. Well, as you look at this one, uh, all of you have gone through the study of the New Testament. What was one common theme as Jesus was with the Jews? What came up repeatedly among the Jews regarding the notion that the rejection of Christ the Jews is unpredictable? Was he rejected once by the Jews as he taught, Trevor? It was a constant. From the time he came, uh, there was opposition by the Jews. They rejected Christ almost from the beginning of his ministry. Now, was it unpredictable? Did God not know this would happen? What do you think, Harold? God knew, didn't he? Uh, there are a number of passages, a lot, uh, several from Isaiah, uh, that we can look at. I think just a couple here. One is Isaiah 53. It's a familiar passage to us. Uh, this is quoted in John chapter 12. And this is it. But though he had done so many signs before then, yet they believed not on him, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who had believed our report. And this is, to be, this is verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 53. The Bible student recognizes Isaiah 53 as a messianic psalm or prophecy about Christ. Uh, so here we have a clear statement that this is what was spoken of by Isaiah. Uh, then Psalm 118, verse 22, the statement about Christ, uh, confirmed by his statement in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says unto them, you can't get any better confirmation than that, can you? Now that's very, very, it's very powerful. When Jesus says to them, did you never read in the Scripture? What Scripture is he talking about, Greg? Yeah, the Old Testament. He said, did you not read in the Scripture? Here, he's talking to Jews, right? Have you not read your own book? The Old Testament book. Did you not read the Scripture? The stone was built to reject the same was made the head of the corner. Of course, if you look at that entire context here, he's talking about himself. Very clear in my context that the Jews, he said, you have rejected me. I am the head of the cornerstone, and you've rejected me, but you ought not to be surprised at this, because it was prophesied, Psalm, back in the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, a thousand years prior to that, it had been prophesied. Well, here are just two examples of some Old Testament passages, and there are others that answer the, the argument that the rejection of truth Christ the Jews is unpredictable. Now, if you take a, you back away from it, what would it also say about God? If, that, if that's truly the key, what would it say about God? Definitely limits his power and his ability to force out. Absolutely. He would not be omniscient. He wouldn't know all. Uh, he just didn't know. God was surprised. Has God ever been surprised? <clears throat> no. God is not surprised. So, great kind of... And just some uh, irony in the fact that many of the people that hold this are also Calvinists who uh, believe every blade of grass swings at the coordination of God. Yep. Sort of a uh, contradiction in theory in it. Yep. Interesting point. One other just quick thing is, missed it the first time? How do we know God won't miss it? Good point. And as those who espouse this theory, the, uh, the witnesses, for example, how many dates have they set? Ten set dates. Another key point here in the church was the substitute. Uh, we mentioned last Sunday about the postponement theory. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago some view of the church as the first installment of the kingdom. And it was sort of a, a down payment. Uh, it, was, it was deferred until uh, Christ comes again. A key passage, Ephesians chapter 3, 9 through 11. The intended out of the principalities and the power of the heavenly places might be made known to the church, the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another key statement made down in verse 21 of that chapter, 
that in the church uh, God would be would receive glory throughout the ages to come. Uh, so that is not in the in, in in the church he would receive the glory. So another key statement in chapter in verse twenty one of Ephesians chapter three. So this is certainly a key passage to answer the argument that the church is a substitute. Because it was not an afterthought, it wasn't a substitute, it was always a part of the eternal plan of God. How long is eternal? Forever. It's eternal, right? right. Uh, So it was always there. Embedded in this is also the implication that Jesus fell in his mission. It says that he came to establish a kingdom. The premillennialists say, yeah, he came to establish a kingdom, but it didn't happen. That says that Jesus really failed in his mission to come and establish a kingdom. Uh, I left the reference off here. It's uh, John 17, 4. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Uh, so before his ascension back, back to heaven. So Jesus himself said, I, I completed the work. Uh, Interesting by Paul in Romans 16. We're familiar with Romans 16. It's his great treatise you know, on salvation in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As opposed to the law. As he brings that book to a close. That down him the day will establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now notice that. According to revelation of mystery, which has been kept in silence through times eternal. Now it's been revealed. What was there in times eternal has now been revealed. What's been revealed? Well, it's been revealed in the preaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself came preaching what? What did Jesus say was at hand? The kingdom was at hand. John said the kingdom was at hand. Right. So again, a very key passage here. But now it's manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God is made known unto all the nations under obedience of faith. So there's a lot contained in this passage here by Paul. Uh, again, confirmed that it was in God's eternal plan. It is not a substitute. Thought that the kingdom was not imminent. Obviously, it was in the mind of the premillennialists, it's still yet to come. Uh, that means that 2,000 years ago, when Christ was on earth, it was not imminent. And yet we find that as John the Baptist taught Matthew 3, 2, he said the kingdom was at hand. Jesus taught Matthew 4, 17, the kingdom was at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15, he says the time is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. But what time was fulfilled? Time of all these Old Testament prophecies. He said fulfillment is now here. The kingdom is at hand. That's what he made in Mark 1, 14, 15. Uh, then this familiar statement, some of you standing here today who shall no wise taste to death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. So the natural conclusion there is what? <coughs> the kingdom came, or you got some folks that are or get some old folks, right? Okay. So that is a natural conclusion here, Mark 9 and verse 1. Can't do that. It says the apostles were not in the kingdom because the kingdom did not exist, right? So another powerful argument is that it's really pretty hard to argue with. Colossians 1.13, somebody mentioned last week, who delivered us, past tense, out of the power of darkness and translated us in the kingdom of the Son of His love. Written by Paul. Paul certainly thought he was in the kingdom with those at Colossae to whom he was writing a letter. If we're trapped, we are in the kingdom. Alright, past tense. Revelation 1, 9, John says, I, John, your brother, partake with you in the tribulation and kingdom. John certainly thought that he was in the kingdom. Again, some very simple proof texts for us to use, first of all, to understand that the premillennial theory is incorrect. 
Because clear evidence of statements by inspired writers that they were in the kingdom in the first century. And this one's interesting. The theory states, a basic tenet is, that Christ will reign on a literal throne of David in Jerusalem. Now, what tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Judah. What tribe was David from? Judah. Was Judah. So, it's certainly true that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of David. How does Matthew chapter 1 begin? That's how it begins. With the statement of fact that Jesus is of David. So that's a well-known fact. Now, a key prophet of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 12, uh, states that God would raise one up. You're familiar with this uh, Old Testament passage. don't have a lot of time to spend on it. But it's a key passage relative to one being raised up to sit on the throne of David. Now, we might be a little bit perplexed, but what... What's he talking about except for the fact that by God's providence in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36, what does Peter have to say about Jesus reigning? What does he have to say about where was David at the day of Pentecost? He passed on. David's in the tomb, right? But he says God kept his promise. God did raise one up, right? He raised someone up sitting throne. David is not David now because David's still in the tomb. So I made it clear to the Jews that, that on that day of Pentecost, and I'm not talking about David, your father, he's still in the tomb. Now, the statement of 2 Samuel 7 that he refers to was referring to someone else. Well, who was it referring to? Well, Peter affirmed very clearly in his comments on the day of Pentecost that this is Jesus of Christ who's been raised up to reign on the throne of David. So you want to make this real clear connection here. So Jesus is reigning, but... He's now reigning, right, in the kingdom, which is the point we make in a moment. Uh, now, unless someone say, well, Jesus is going to reign on a physical throne, and that was talking about the literal throne in Judah, don't forget this little passage here, John 18, 36. Jesus simply said, my kingdom is not of this world. He goes on to say, well, in my kingdom or of this world, then what? My servant would fight. He was talking about a literal fight, right? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter is saying that Jesus was raised up by God to reign on the throne of David, but not in Jerusalem, but over the kingdom of prophecy. Certainly not a physical kingdom. And again, if you remember one passage, if you remember one passage on Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 26. It's this man, Coniah, that Jeconiah, short for Jeconiah, one of the last kings. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken vessel? Is he a vessel wherein none delighteth? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? Now this is at the closing days of Israel going into captivity, right? This would have been the 597 carrying captivity. O earth, 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 hear the word of Jehovah. Thus said Jehovah, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper his days, and no more shall a man of the seed prosper sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling in Judah. Now, notice how emphatic it is right here. Hear the word of Jehovah. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus of Judah, of the line of the lineage of David, ruling in Israel? Can't do it and prosper, can he? It says no one is going to prosper reigning upon the throne of David in Jerusalem. So again, a very, very key passage uh, to answer this argument about him reigning in Jerusalem. I want to spend a few minutes, we come back to this, 
the end of the day, in soul life, we've noticed a few prophecies. I've got some more listed on the next page. Uh, just so you know, I want to mention some here. I have come and listed a number of the ones I want to mention here very briefly, so you got a reference. You can go online and pull these off. Uh, again, this was introduced many, many years ago, probably 60, 70 years ago, just as a visual during a debate uh, to make the point very clearly that the prophecies pointing up to the day of Pentecost were always looking into the future. Even in the verb tenses that were used, the future tense. Uh, we're going to eat lunch somewhere, right? Uh, that's in the future. At 1 o'clock, we will say, well, we ate lunch. Past tense. That's how, that's how important and how simple this, this powerful argument is. You look at Old Testament prophecies. From Isaiah, Joel, Daniel. We can look at Hosea, chapter 2. You can look at other chapters, not chapter 2, right? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, there are a lot of Old Testament passages. But the point of this is that they were always pointing to a point when the kingdom would be established. Now, we talked a little bit about the left-hand side. He said made in Isaiah chapter 2, is a mountain of the Lord's house would be established and the word would go forth from where? Jerusalem. From Zion or Jerusalem. So that was what Isaiah said, among other things. It also said that we'll beat the sword into plowshares, right? Spears into pruning hooks. So there would come a time when there would be, uh, would be a reconciliation. Now, if we look at the Scripture, certainly that's a reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in one body in Christ, which is a message of Colossians chapter 2, right? Beginning verse 14. That's what that treatise is all about. Uh, where Paul said that middle wall partition has been broken down. It's been taken out of the way. Uh, what's the mystery of Ephesians chapter 3? It's a gospel. It's a bringing together Jew and Gentile. Specifically, it's a bringing together in Christ the Jew and Gentile into one body. That is the mystery spoken of in the New Testament. So we see that, that Isaiah was fulfilled according to what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 beginning in verse 14. Now, another key passage to couple with Isaiah chapter 2 is this passage right here. Out on the next page, I've got it in uh, Luke chapter 24. Now, this is important because we got Christ, but we got uh, Luke writing here about, about Christ. If you look there, uh, verse 44, and he said unto them, These are my words that I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must these be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So we got Christ speaking. Then it opened he their mind that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name in all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Right? So here Jesus is saying that the prophecy, although he doesn't mention it specifically, we know there's a prophecy that talks about the word going forth from Jerusalem. And if you see, then you couple that with verses four, verse 49. Behold, I send forth the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city. Which city? Jerusalem. Tarry ye in the city until you be clothed with power from upon high. So Luke 24 becomes another key passage, simply in understanding the chronology and the occurrences of what happened on the day of Pentecost, especially in regards to the, to the kingdom. But then if you come into Acts chapter 1, in the first nine verses, uh, short before Jesus ascends, he's with the apostles, and he tells them what? Tarry in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And he said in Acts chapter 1, not many days since. Ended up being not more than 10 days, right? Because he had been on earth 40 days, and he cost being 50th day, so about 10 days. So he said, you tarry in Jerusalem. You're going to be given the power of the Holy Spirit. So you couple Luke 24 with the first part, with the first part of the book of Acts chapter 1. And you see, and you see that fulfillment. Right? Now you come in then to Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter quotes Job chapter 2, beginning verse 28. What, what is the prophecy that Job quotes, that Peter quotes from Job? Alright? God pours spirit upon all flesh. And before that he says what? This is, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Job. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Job. Now, had he wanted to state that a little more clearly, how could he have said it, Trevor? Pretty difficult, right? Uh, when you get a, a statement in the New that says, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now, some will take that, that path, try to pick it apart. Well, I don't see how this particular piece fits. But bear in mind, here's some figurative language, right? Uh, I'm content when the writer says, This is what Joel was talking about, I accept my faith. I'm not going to argue the point. I'm not going to quibble about details of how Joel's prophecy may not fit exactly in. But they try to shoehorn it perfectly into the events of Pentecost. I don't need to do that. Because he said, this is what Joel was talking about. So there's no question at all that Joel was looking forward to Acts chapter 2 because the apostle said, this is what Joel was talking about. So certainly we see a very clear connection between Joel 2 and Acts 2. Now Daniel chapter 2, again a very, very key chapter. Uh, the, the greater king Nebuchadnezzar, four kingdoms. Uh, the first was uh, Babylon. What was the second? Medo Persian. Third? Greece. Greece. Now, you've heard me say before, I'm thankful for Daniel chapter 8. Because in, first of all, in Daniel 2, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, thou art the head of gold. So we know that the first kingdom was Babylon. There's no question. He says that in chapter 2. God in His wisdom gave a Daniel chapter 8 when he, again a, a similar dream. He says the second king, king of that of Medes and Persians, third of the Greeks. So Daniel tells us what the first three kingdoms are. Then he looked for a then, then there would be a fourth kingdom. Now Daniel two forty four to these of this kingdom shall another kingdom be established, which shall what? Never be destroyed. Now here is the other kingdom, and in the days of these kings. Well, when is this? When are the days of these kings? Well, as you as you look forward to the New Testament, I think the clearest way to, to see that is you come into Luke chapter three. Other passages. As you come into the days of Roman kings, now first of all, an honest, an honest student of history in the Bible would say, "Well, let's see. After the these were great kingdoms: Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. What other great kingdom was there between Greece and Rome? There wasn't one. Exactly right. There was not one. And Daniel too says this kingdom is more fierce, is more terrible, it's more diverse than the other three. It's greater. So it says it's greater than the first three. So the fulfillment of Daniel 2 is look for a kingdom of greater than the first three kingdoms. When you consider how great they were, you're looking for a great kingdom. And when you come to Luke chapter 3, you're now in a day that speaks of Augustus Caesar. All right, That was the enrollment. When Jesus was born, it was during the days of Augustus Caesar. Well, that puts us in the days of the Roman kings. Uh, you come to Luke chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. In the 15th year of Tiberius. Tiberius began reigning in 14 AD, so it puts it about 29. 
Here, well, the church was established about 33 A.D. How do we know that? Is that somebody's guess? No, it's not a guess. They may be off within a year or so, right? But we know that in the 29th, when, when, that uh, Jesus was, was about 29 years old when the ministry began. Because that statement made. John the Baptist was 29. John was how much older than Christ? Six months. Six months. So you can put that together pretty, pretty easily to come up with that understanding. So in Luke chapter 3, uh, you find that the word came to John the Baptist in, the, in A.D. 29, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. But when did the kingdom come about? Well, as soon as John began teaching and Jesus began teaching, what was their message? Kingdom is at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus, at, in this time frame, says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Another key point. What's fulfilled? All this that, that the prophets have been talking about. The coming of the kingdom, the key message of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was there to lead us to Christ, right? All the prophets pointed to Christ. Pointed to Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the kingdom. So Jesus says that this is now, this is the days are fulfilled. And so this links together Daniel chapter 2. We could do it more completely, but at least here are some key verses to help us link Daniel chapter 2 with the coming of Christ in the days of the Roman king. And you look at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. As one comes, the ancient of days, and the kingdom is given to him. Again, a reference to Christ as we come forward in time. If you look back, these are verses that pastors were familiar with. Ephesians chapter book, the whole book of Ephesians is a treatise about the church. Uh, salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians talked about. And gave men to be head over all things to the to the church, which is his body. Right? That's what Ephesians chapter two is talking about, talking about the church. But notice that, that the church is now in existence. Kings in existence. We talk about the Colossians two Hebrews Hebrews chapter two. Uh, again, talk about Christ in the past tense, that now He's been raised up. Come down to verse 14. He's now overcome the power of death. So all the events that were going to take place are now looking in the past tense. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Wherefore, receiving a what? A kingdom which cannot be destroyed. Hebrews chapter 12, 28. Another key passage. If we were having received, past tense, a kingdom, kings are already been received. Alright, so we got a final comment. Hopefully I've uh, not done injustice to this subject in three lessons. A lot of material. Very good. Appreciate the attention.